Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Jeff, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited for our conversation today. Let's jump in. Awesome. Hey, Steve. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, you're welcome. So let, let's, let's talk about um, your experience and your journey up to this point. You know, obviously you work in the world of finance and, you know, in, in strategy, but how did you become interested in this field? And did you know what you wanted to do from a young age? And, and let's, let's just talk about your journey and get everybody caught up to speed here. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I definitely didn't know what I wanted to do uh, growing up, but so I, I grew up just outside of Toronto in Canada uh, and started my career with a fairly traditional finance path, you know, spending a few years in investment banking in Toronto before moving on to investing. Following investment banking, I really wanted to understand companies at a deeper level. Uh, and I thought there was no better way than growth investing because I thought, you know, gaining conviction on growth and theses with, with many unknowns is super challenging um, and turned out to be really engaging. So I moved to San Francisco and joined Silver Lake's growth fund. I spent the next couple of years investing in software companies. Um, and in addition to learning deeply about SaaS uh, and being exposed to software, I spent quite a bit of time supporting founders of our portfolio companies. And that's where I started to realize there was a huge knowledge gap between how, as an investor, I evaluated companies and how companies themselves made decisions and particularly the problems they faced. So after a few years at Silver Lake, I decided the next best learning opportunity would be to join a growing company and learn and understand the problems that operators face. So I was lucky enough to find Gusto and get the chance to help small businesses while working with an amazing group of leaders. And the way I really think about my career so far is each step was getting closer to the heart of business and where decisions are ultimately made. I think the jump to an operating role felt like the biggest leap and step change um, and definitely was in my learning curve. Uh, and at the time felt like such a risky career decision. But I'm so, so grateful for joining Gusto and getting the chance to learn from some amazing leaders. No, that's fantastic. And what great experience. And, and let's go back to Silver Lake. So when you were there, you had the opportunity to work with a lot of companies and you just had exposure to a lot of organizations. Were there certain patterns that you saw in companies or certain attributes that made some successful and others more flounder? Yeah, I think um, what we were really focused on is obviously market size is number one thing. Um, and then what I think, though, that we underappreciated as investors was the teams. Uh, and I think we, we may have underappreciated how important that is, which I would definitely overweight now, having been inside a company. But I think the quality of leadership looking back is definitely 
you know, a, a pretty common characteristic uh, that I now recognize learning back, looking back on, on those investments that we did make. Sure. So you think teams and leadership, you know, obviously those are really important. What about when it comes to like strategy, the strategy, like business strategy matter as much as having just a really solid team. And, and what's your thought on, on that? Absolutely. And I think um, what, what I've learned and how I think about strategy now is it's as important to think about what you are going to do as, as what you're not going to do. And I think sometimes that's even more important. And I think ultimately strategic decisions and choices made, it really comes down to what you're not going to do. The customers you're not going to focus on, what you're not going to go build. And I think that focus is really important and, and definitely a common thread across successful companies. And why do you think that's so important? Because you know, a, a lot of the business owners out there, they want to do more. And, they, and there's this idea of like diversification because I've, I've worked with some owners and they're like, well, look, you know, like what if a recession comes and we don't offer service? So we need to do service and install and this and that. And we, oh, we need to focus on over here. And it's like, they try to diversify themselves you know, into safety. But to your point, like you could almost scatter yourself and straddle so many different things that you actually have a bad strategy and your, your resources are spread too thin and, and you're not very effective and not very competitive. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, it's, it's a challenge. I think you want to make sure that you're going after a big enough opportunity um, that affords you that diversification. But I think if you, you know, spread yourself too thin and you're really not good for any customer or any segment of customers, then you ultimately, you might experience some growth with um, early adopters, but over time in order to scale up, I think in order to hit the main market, you'll, you'll struggle. Um, So I think that focus early on is really important. I think one of the the frameworks for me that I really think about a lot is um, crossing the chasm in that, in that book um, really changed how I think about business strategy and, and the bowling pin strategy, particularly so for me, I think that's that's how I would really focus company strategy. And I think Augusto, we've, we've done a really good job of that focus. But it's all about sequencing um, and who you prioritize now and who you're going to be prioritizing in the future. Sure. I absolutely agree. So at Gusto, you know, you work with, you know, finance, business operations and strategy all combined in your role. And uh, I know you have this huge interest in building teams. So what advice do you have for building teams, whether it's remote, in person, hybrid, like how do you get started and, and what do you think it takes to build a great team? Yeah. So I think let, let's break that down into, into two things. I think that there's the transition to remote. Um, and then I think building teams and, and hiring is is related but uh, and tangential, but also kind of deserves its own space. So I think whether people wanted to or not, every team really had no choice but to figure out how to work remotely. Uh, and I think everyone is still learning what works for them and their teams. But I really believe relative success on that depends on the values and motivations of folks you've hired and continue to hire. So I think it was definitely a tough change, but I think because of the culture and the values and motivations of the folks we've hired, we were really set up well. Um, and then the second layer to add when building a team, especially remotely, I mean, I think it really depends on the team and roles and responsibilities of that, of that group. I think for our team and our current scale, which typically hires more experienced folks that can have a higher degree of autonomy, we've been able to work really well remotely. 
but it really depends on um, what the jobs to be done are for that team. And sometimes it for sure makes more sense to be in the office for those teams. I mean, when you think about, you know, I think there's all this like team equity that gets built up over time, right? You're working together every day. Um, you have these relationships that are formed, something like COVID happens and all of a sudden now people are dispersed and they're working remote. Do you think that like that equity, that relationship equity eventually wears out? Or do you think individuals and teams could still be effective um, working in remote environments long-term? Yeah, I think for for us and what, what we've experienced, the relationships that we built in office provided an incredibly strong foundation to go be remote for what, what will probably be almost two years. Uh, and that was really important. But I think the challenges come from some folks who are joined remotely, onboarded remotely, and, and have since been working entirely remotely. And I have one microcosm example of this that has really surprised me. So we had, we had two folks joining our team in early April uh, of 2020. And until recently, no one on the team has met them in person. I had weekly one-on-ones with one of them. And we recently met up in Denver for, for dinner. And I was cautiously you know, anticipating an awkward transition from Zoom to in-person. Uh, mm-hmm. But I was really surprised about what it was. It was incredibly se- seamless. It really felt like there was no transition. So that gives me hope that relationships can be formed over digital communications. But uh, I certainly believe going forward, it'll be important to meet in person on a regular cadence. Yeah, I absolutely agree. All right. So let's go back to your role. So how do you think like FP&A strategy, business operations, all these things, how do they correlate? And how do you suggest other companies align these teams and these roles and these functions to be more cohesive and high performing? Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to use a metrics framework to help describe why these three roles and strategy, FP&A, and business operations uh, make sense to be together in one team and, and how it connects. Let's visualize a pyramid. The tip of the pyramid are L1 metrics. So metrics such as market size, total revenue, and total customers. And the bottom of the pyramid are L6 metrics, which includes highly specific operational metrics, often at the user basis and specific to different features of the product or activities. Metrics from levels four through six are mostly where the inputs to a business are made and can be measured, you know, teams, headcount and activities and product roadmap. Metrics one through three are largely measuring the outcome of those inputs. So at level one, it's those total summary metrics, but by level three, it's subcuts by product or region or customer age. So we view our finance and biz ops team as responsible for supporting metrics levels one through four. Because we think it's critical for folks supporting business decisions to be able to understand the connection between the inputs to the outputs, all the way from how we're measuring the productivity of our teams and what activity we're prioritizing, all the way up to the market opportunity and and through our unit economics. I think many companies have strategy and FG&A and biz ops all as separate teams. But I think, and we believe, and huge kudos uh, to my PE, Andy, for really building this framework with our team. Um, We really believe by having those separate, it creates gaps in coverage and translation between those layers 
such that you might not be able to make decisions at the input level that connect to where the company wants to go. They might be disconnected. Sure. Strategy might be going one way and what you're actually building as a business might be doing something else. So we, as a team, really think it's important to connect those dots. So that's why we put those together. So talk more about this metric framework. It's pretty interesting, you know, how you, how you described it and uh, being in a pyramid and you have L1 through L6, you know, how does that help your organization stay aligned and, and measure what really matters? And, and maybe talk a little bit more about that in detail. Yeah. So I think there's been um, comparisons of this metric framework to actually how you think about product features and how you think about the impact of those, because you need to draw connections between your deepest, most specific signals all the way up to what we're actually trying to do, which is you know, grow customers and grow revenue. So it's, it's helped us not only frame connecting and, and holding teams accountable to actually driving the business, the L1, L2 metrics, but I think it's also helped communicate to other teams um, where we can be helpful on our team. And where we need help from more operational teams at the L4 through L6 metrics. So I think in, in both those ways, this framework has really helped both communicate uh, what our team can do, but also helped drive the business um, from building features and making product-based decisions and sequencing all the way into uh, connecting those to ultimately what we're trying to do. Sure. Absolutely. That makes sense. Okay. Let's pause here real quick and explain to the listeners if, if they, they may be sitting here and maybe they've heard of Gusto, maybe they haven't. Explain what does Gusto do and, and why do you think it's unique and, and it's been so successful so far in the marketplace? Sure. So Gusto is a people platform for small and medium businesses. Uh, our mission is to create a world where work empowers a better life. And that's through three core pillars. That's delivering small businesses and their teams peace of mind. Uh, helping them offer a great place to work and providing personal prosperity. Uh, today, we help over 200,000 small businesses in the US across all industries. And we really do that by helping them build their teams, pay them, offer benefits, hire and onboard, including remotely. Uh, ultimately, we want to help our customers build successful businesses and, and great places to work. So from a product perspective, we offer comprehensive payroll benefits and HR solutions, as well as personal prosperity solutions for their employees. Uh, I think when Gusto was started, there were really no modern solutions for small businesses. We're talking really small businesses that also didn't look at them as a unit, but instead as an entrepreneur that wears many different hats. And, and we try and take some of that burden off their shoulders um, so they can really focus on building their business. And, and was that the idea behind your market focus and position is to go after these small cap companies that were being underserved? Because you know, there, there's other organizations out there, other companies, other competitors that do what you do, I'd imagine, right? In the space. Yeah. So what, what we saw and what the founders saw is in starting their own business and, and talking to other really small businesses, they saw that there was no solution really purpose-built for, for small businesses. I mean, before the advent of buying online and frankly, software as a service, uh, it was really hard to get to these customers, to market to them, to build a product with sustainable unit economics to actually help them. And I think the combination of reaching them digitally and building a cloud product really opened that market. But I think for incumbents, it was a really hard market to then go after because it's, it's really hard to make it make sense to chase after smaller businesses and customers with smaller ACVs. And when you've got go-to-market models really centered around 
people knocking on doors and, and being with customers, it's really hard to transition to a digital first go-to-market model. So I think both from a customer acquisition standpoint and from a cloud-delivered, modern, easy-to-use solution that brought some humanity to these problems, you know, we really saw an open open space there. Sure. No, that makes sense. Okay. Well, let's talk about kind of structure within Gusto and specifically as it relates to roles. So how do you frame roles at Gusto and why is framing roles in this manner so important? Yeah. So I think the the number one thing um, and probably the, the thing we talk about the most is actually the the decision to not use the word manager and because we we don't believe the word manager invokes the right tone of relationship between leaders and their team we use the language people in power or short form being pe uh, and i think this accomplishes a few things it sets the tone for the relationship between pe's and their team and i think it establishes a more productive environment of development and growth i think for other companies they need to do what's right for them and their values and i'm definitely not the first one to say it the culture isn't what you write in your values. It's how you make decisions. It's how priorities are made. It's how adversity is managed. And importantly, I think it shows up in how your company communicates and the language it uses. So one word we use a lot is intentional. Uh, and I think that's reflected in the decision to use the language people in power. So starting at that level, I think how you frame relationships between leaders and their teams is really important. And that's one thing that we're really, really thoughtful about. So do you think you know, titles within organizations can be, let's say, hurtful or limiting or negative in, in certain ways using certain titles. Or, I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on yeah. that? Because, you know, I, I came as working at a company and it's pretty interesting because um, I wasn't used to it, but the titles were like so important to them. And it kind of caught me off guard because I remember meeting with, with somebody and they reported to me and, you know, we were moving them into a, a new department, a new role. And I remember she was saying, okay, what, what's my new title going to be? And I was like, well, I mean, we got to you know, come up with that and, and figure out like how we want to describe this position. You know, it's like such a big deal. So I think some people, yeah. you know, they use that and it could be, you know, whether it's a power trip, whether it's a way to like keep people down or whether it's, you know, it, I mean, and maybe not everybody's like malicious like that. I'm not saying they're malicious, but sometimes it can have a negative connotation and, and have other implications. And I want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so that's a that's definitely another thing that we decided to do at Gusto uh, from the beginning, well before I was at Gusto, was uh, to not use titles. And I think there isn't a whole lot of research uh, that suggests that using titles have advantages. I think for the most part, um, there's a lot of downside to it. And I think, like you mentioned, it, it creates a lot of distraction. I think it distracts from ultimately what we're trying to do, which is help customers. And I think titles form walls and barriers between teams and within teams. And it really elevates, I think, the importance of an ego. And I think by removing titles uh, and just, you know, if you look across our teams, it's just our team that we're on and we don't talk about titles. I think that helps to flatten the organization. I think it makes it more uh, merit-based and I think it helps to elevate the insights that everyone can can add to conversations. And ultimately, I think that it helps people take more risks because uh, they're not always thinking about their title. And, and I think so. So for us, I think it's been really helpful. And I really love uh, having no titles at Gusto. Now, there are there are downsides, certainly. Uh, externally, I think there's challenges. I think it's always hard to figure out who, you know, 
where people are in an organization like Gusto when there aren't titles, but those are second priority to helping our customers and growing our business. So uh, that's why we made that decision. Sure. And that, that makes sense perfectly. Um, let's talk about the performance review process. So there's so many organizations that do different things. Um, I've worked in organizations, I've consulted organizations um, that they they do different things. Some of the things I, I think are kind of goofy and backwards, but I want to hear your thoughts on how does Gusto view like performance reviews, performance management, and, and, and talk about the process and the strategy that you guys use in this area. Sure. So I think performance reviews, and really I would distill that down into feedback, should be as regular as possible, as frequent as it happens in the moment. And I think that's something I really focus on with my team is trying to not wait until formal cycles to give people feedback. And that's just one kind of thing that we all try and do at Gusto is is increase the cadence and frequency of feedback, both positive and constructive to accelerate development. There's no sense in waiting until performance reviews. But the one thing we do do um, is we do two formal performance reviews uh, for every 12-month period. So twice a year to make sure that frequency of feedback is high. And then Within the performance review, there's three sources of a review. So everyone does their own self-reflection. Everyone also selects three to five peers uh, to provide what we call peer feedback. These are often cross-functional folks that you're working with or, or people on your team. And then each PE does a PE reflection for each of the people on their team. And these reflections and feedback are typically specific to a matrix of stop, start, and continue across five attributes. And these five attributes for Gusto are first principles, problem solving, execution and results focus, initiative and growth, presence and communication, and feedback and authentic influence. And for each level, and our our teams have done an amazing job with this, for each level, we have specific examples of these attributes. So it's super clear what the expectations are and what feedback should generally be focused on. Yeah. And how does, like, because some organizations, they'll do something very similar. And I remember like once a year um, at one organization is like a big scramble to get bonuses calculated and communicated out to employees. And you did like these performance reviews. And I mean, you could only remember the last few weeks of, of really what went on. And they're probably mm-hmm. on your good side if they delivered a project well or on your bad side if they've missed a deadline recently. And it's kind of like a skewed process or some people would take the time to like really provide thoughtful feedback. And then other people would just be like, ah, I just need to get through five of these for my direct reports and it'd be not super helpful. So how do you manage all that? And I mean, I I know you guys are are trying to do it more frequently and, and you have those, those different areas to measure, but how can things be different in this area? Yeah. So I think I mean, one of our attributes is feedback. So that's something we do give feedback on. Mm-hmm. And I think what's what I've found helpful, and we, we do have internal training around this, um, is I make notes through the period of different observations and the feedback I'm giving in real time. And I make notes of that. So I'm, I'm not biased to what's most recent. And I think that's a huge problem. And I think um, leaders have to be keeping record and, and writing down notes and observing rather than recalling just the most recent observations. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a, it's a challenge. Um, I've developed some, some of these habits uh, and, I, and we do a pretty good job at Gusto of internal training, but it's a, it's a challenge. Uh, and that's what I found to work for me. It's been really helpful. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So let, let's go back to finance. And let's talk about finance and, and this whole idea of combining strategy, FP&A, um, and all these things together. 
because what I find usually in, in organizations when it comes to like the accounting and finance function is that a lot of people throughout the organization see them as like these hoarders of information, these gatekeepers, these cops, like these compliance cops, right? You you have to go to the principal's office or the accounting department to, you know, turn in your late expense report or whatever it is. You know, how do you how do you guys view things differently at Gusto when it comes to you know the whole finance strategy FP&A function? It's a very tricky balance, uh, and I think a lot of teams can get caught, uh, unfortunately, on, on the wrong side of that line. But I think as a team, we frame our mission as uh, to define, defend, and accelerate the business. So define is defining the metrics. Defend is helping to build a sustainable business model. And accelerate is is a really important word because what we want to be is an accelerant to the business, not an inhibitor. So we think of our team as thought partners to our business leaders. Uh, We help make decisions and we bring a, try to bring a unique perspective and informed and grounded, uh, certainly in data and, and quantitative analysis, but balanced by the qualitative. And I think those trusted perspectives across what I've referred to, you know, as the L1 and L4 metrics, by framing it that way and thinking of ourselves as thought partners and being very conscious of this balance that you have to draw between, you know, being the cost inhibitors and and being the ones controlling the budgets and, and being the ones helping to build the business and accelerate it. I think it's a really tricky balance, but I think by framing it that way, and I think by uh, having us cover such depth across metrics really helps uh, us add a lot of value and uh, try to find the right line. And, and how do you think financial leaders can do a better job of building bridges between these other functions? Because if you think about it, you know the the finance function. They they have so much information. They can see behind the curtain. They have all these metrics at their fingertips, and their role is really to like connect, like and build these bridges between all the other functions, so the business can become integrated and really focused on the true value drivers and, and especially serving the customer. So, you know, how do you see the finance function um, doing this and doing a better job at building bridges? I think uh, number one is data transparency. Uh, I think you've got to surface and have all of this information accessible to the rest of the company. I think that's really important to help build trust. I think the second thing is when uh, building targets and plans and budgets, I think that's a a co-building relationship with your business leaders. That's not something that uh, starts and ends with finance. It's something done together. And I think uh, those two things really, really help us both build trust by showing everyone uh, what goes into our forecast, how we think about it and talking about it every month, uh, but also um, setting up our team in the right way to be able to cover and build build those relationships with our operating leaders and then making sure that there's buy-in through those processes. Uh, and that's a big focus area for me is, is building that buy-in with our leaders on our targets and our budgets and, and everything. Sure. Yeah. And that, that's a good point. And, and I think like that transparency, like you said, is so critical, but it it's tough because some of these businesses, they, they feel like they can't be super transparent with all the numbers. And I've seen organizations do a lot of wacky things, right. Where they, they hide certain things or they're like almost embarrassed to show employees like profitability, or they think like, Hey, if they show a certain level of, 
of financial success, then other employees are going to be asking for raises or, you know, wanting more and wanting to take more. And so it's kind of like this balance sometimes of how much information do you share and be completely open and how much information should you hold back? But it's also like, if you hold back the information, people don't understand the story and they don't understand the value drivers. So it's kind of this, this weird, like catch 22 cycle. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a dangerous, dangerous game to play. I think it's really critical for everyone at the company to know what they're driving, how they're having an impact and where that shows up and, and where we're headed and where they can help. We, we definitely don't hold any information, you know, just inside the financing. We, we are very, very open with all of our metrics. And I think actually that was a big unlock for our team over the last couple of years was we went from operating largely in Excel models and not publishing reports or performance versus plans in a shareable manner to every month showing all of our metrics by each of our routes to market and all of our teams uh, in a Google sheet that anyone can access and they can go see all the drivers we look at for the business. And that was a huge unlock for our team, not only in, in increasing transparency, but also to not be the ones always answering the questions of what's this data point? What's that data point? What's our target here? Uh, we just show it. We just allow everyone to access that all the time. Yeah. And it goes back to what you're saying at the beginning of this episode is trust. You know, like it, it takes a lot of trust with teams and with individuals to, to be able to do that. And I think that's so important. Totally. All right. Let's talk about this trend in, in the business world. The last 10 conversations I've had with business owners, operators, um, entrepreneurs. And when I ask them and I say, how's business going for you? The number one thing that gets brought up is the people. Can't find the people. It's something related to human capital. You can't find them. You know, They're not qualified, whatever it is, right? But it's all people issues. And I, I think human capital is like such a critical part of, of business. And I mean, if you just look on the P&L, you know, labor is typically going to be the, the number one cost of most organizations. So how do you see companies like managing their human capital really well? And how do you see companies, you know, not managing them well and, and, you know, missing opportunities with their human capital? So I think it, it even goes all the way to how you talk about and how you frame uh, your people and your most important part of your business. Uh, I think we, we view people as core. They are everything. They are our business. And we try to help our customers build a workplace that um, is fantastic for their employees and their people. And I think the choice of even, you know, we even avoid language like human resources, because that that inherently implies that humans are just a resource. Uh, So we're very deliberate and intentional with some of our language choices around that. Um, And I think that grounding kind of illustrates and elevates the importance of your people. And I think when like stepping back, uh, if you look at the U S economy, it's, it's obviously shifting to a more services based economy. And as a result, it's, it's not a surprise that people are the primary input. And I think every business in, in both uncertain times will, will have to focus on retaining their employees, valuing them, uh, and being very thoughtful about how they can help um, their employees develop and grow. Sure, and I, and I think that's so critical. And it, it's just interesting to me because you know some companies they'll go out and they'll invest in super expensive equipment, right? And they'll maintain it, they'll grease it, they'll clean it. I mean, they they'll baby it. Uh, but then when it comes to 
you know, their human capital, right? They're, I mean, they treat them very poorly. They don't train them. They don't build the capabilities that are required to do their jobs effectively. They hire, fire. I mean, they, they just mismanage talent. And it, it's, I, I think there's a tremendous upside for organizations that can get it right. And that can shift their mindset from like this, like you said, this human resource mindset of, oh, you're just a resource, you're replenishable um, to like, hey, here's this, this uh, capital that we have within our organization that has you know, tremendous, tremendous value and can magnify returns in so many different ways. And I'm not just talking about financial returns. I'm talking about, you know, innovation returns and customer experience returns and and everything else related to the delivery of products and services in a business. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's nothing more important than your people. As, as Gusto, we, we try and help our customers uh, see that and we give them tools and solutions to do that. So it's, it's a huge focus area for us, both internally and for what we are trying to do as a business. Well, and I, I think innovation ties into this because, you know, if you don't have trust among people, if you don't have high performing teams, um, you're not going to be able to, to involve employees at all different levels of the business. And you're not going to be able to share ideas and collaborate and, and um, get advice. So how do you describe this idea of like thought partnership at Gusto? And like, what does this term mean for you personally? Yeah, for me, um, for me, thought partnership means we are a trusted partner, a perspective that our leaders really rely on and value. We provide insights and perspectives that they find really important and help them make decisions. Ultimately, it's the insights and the perspectives you're able to add to conversations and decisions. And that's what we really focus on. Uh, and I think when I, when I talk to people about joining my team, I think that the marker of success is being that, that, re, that person who our, our leaders come to, to bounce ideas off and, and bounce problems off them and, and get their perspective. And I think that's, that's the most important hallmark of success uh, for us. Yeah. And I, and I agree with that. So two things that I've been focusing on lately, just personally, and, and things that I want to definitely get better at is empathy and compassion. And, you know, as in another interview that I just did with um, somebody else, I was talking about this very topic and, you know, in the past, I sheepishly, I have to admit that I probably wasn't the best manager of people, right. Or the leader, the empower of people. And sometimes I would put business goals over people, right. It's like, it's almost like pushing people aside to achieve business goals. And then later to realize that it's the people, not the business goals that are really most important. So I, I've been focusing more and more on like, how do I become more empathetic? How do I, you know, walk in the shoes of other people and how do I start with that? And I, I think um, it's richly improved my life in so many different ways. And I'm definitely not there yet. Hey, look, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert in empathy, but as I travel around the world, as I see different ways of doing things, working with people, as I just, you know, broaden my experiences with individuals, I realize like, hey, look, you know. I think people have good intentions. Um, sure, there's a few like psychopaths out there, but most people they want to do good. Um, they want to have significance. They want to um, have meaning in their lives. They want to have a purpose, and they want to attach onto an organization and do good things. And um, if we could understand that and start from a place of empathy with our employees, then I think we could be so much more effective in helping them grow and, and unlock their potential. And same thing with customers. If we don't start with empathy, then we're just developing products and services that are a bunch of garbage that they don't even want. So what are your thoughts on, on empathy and compassion and, and how do you see that 
um, playing out at Gusto. Yeah. So what, I mean, totally agree to what you said. Empathy is a, the foundation to building good teams and productive teams. The way I try and foster empathy is twofold. One in listening, listening and also being engaged in conversations. I think it's really, really important to give people the space to talk about uh, what they're going through and the problems they're facing. And by listening, I think you, you build empathy, but without being, giving people the space to do that, it, it's uh, kind of a real limiting force. So I also try and foster that listening in conversations also just by asking, asking more questions, being inquisitive, learning more about people. And that, that goes back to that curiosity. So I think for me, that's what I really focus on meeting new people, talking to my teams about how their week's going. Those are a couple of really important principles. Yeah, I agree. And what if you came across a team and they're like completely broken, right? The culture's bad. It's just poisonous. Maybe the, the this particular team, they're, they're not performing well. The trust is broken. Is there hope? Or do you have to just start over from scratch? And like, how do you like get in there and improve the dynamics of a team and, and like rebuild that trust and rebuild that cohesion that leads to high performance? I'm, I'm forever an optimist. So I think I'll always say that uh, there's a way, way to rebuild. And I think it's likely a very long journey to do that. But like you said, it all rests on building that foundation of trust, getting to know each other and getting to know what, what people are after, what their goals are, what their motivations are. Uh, so I think for us, what we do for our team building is we focus on, we, we have a concept called a journey line. And we, whenever someone new joins a team, uh, they go through their journey line, which is really like their life story. And, and people are vulnerable. And I think that helps build a lot of trust and compassion and empathy. And I think that's uh, probably where I would start with a team that doesn't have that is to start by learning about each other, learning about each other and their motivations. Yeah, that's great advice. And and it goes back to that empathy, compassion, and curiosity. And I think when you could do that, then people will be more vulnerable. And, and then when they're vulnerable, trust builds and everything else. So I think that's a great point. All right. Yeah, so exactly. let, let, let's wrap up here. But before we do, have you ever come across a book or a TED talk or a video or a movie or something that has just been really inspirational or life-changing for you? And if so, like any um, recommendations for the listeners out there? Yeah. So I think there's one book, I think it's called Designing Your Life. I think it's actually a Stanford course. And, and while I was at Silver Lake, I was recommended to read it. And I think that really changed my perspective of every day because what it what I took away from that book was effectively you need to be observant about when you're engaged, when you're super plugged in. And when, when you have those moments, write them down, observe them. And then over time, try and design your life around those, try and design your life around having more of those moments and less of the moments when you're not engaged. Uh, and for me, that was just a, a frame shift that really helped me uh, think about and what my priorities are and, and how I want to be spending my time. Yeah, that's great. And um, yeah, I'll have to look that one up. I haven't heard of that one, but I'm always always interested in uh, new books and stuff. So thank you for sharing that. And Jeff, thank you for being on the show today, sharing your insights. Um, you know, there's a lot of rich lessons here that I'm walking away with. 
and uh, definitely things that I can improve um, in, in my leadership style and in just the way that I deal with people. So thank you for imparting some of your wisdom on us. And I, I really appreciate your time and what you're doing out there to add value and impact so many people's lives. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Steve. Really great to speak with you today. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.